Episode 45 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 9.1, Interstate War Returns. I talk with my students about a concept of military generations. That discussion begins with the following. What is the definition of a biological generation? The definition that I offer is the time from birth to reproduction. For the military, that is the time from the arrival of a brand new officer until that person becomes a company commander who is then responsible for indoctrinating the next generation of new officers into the profession of arms. In the present United States Army, that time may be about six years. That means that if there is a gap in war of greater than six years, then the Army lacks a group of company commanders who have the experience of war. A gap of 12 years means there are company commanders who are training new lieutenants who themselves were never trained by those experienced in war, and so on and so on. The longer the period of no war is, the more generations of officers who are without real experience. This isn't me bemoaning peace. I am trying to point out that long periods without war mean that armies have fewer and fewer leaders with war experience, and this means that the war will begin with a period of learning that the armies and their leaders go through as they all try to understand the thing they are experiencing that we call war. Such an environment can be an ugly process. One specific and ugly example happened for the U.S. Army at the beginning of the Korean War in June 1950. This was an army only five years removed from war experience. Every officer in the rank of major and above had combat experience in World War II, and many of the company commanders and senior non-commissioned officers, and yet, because the junior leaders and young soldiers weren't experienced, there was still a steep learning curve as everyone was once again acquainted with the brutal realities of war. Consider now the era in which we recommence war in the Book of Mormon, at a period divorced from war by some 290 years or so. No one knew what they were doing. No one could draw on personal experience of any living person, let alone any person in their own army. There was a brutal learning process, as there has been for every soldier who enters battle led by people who have a generation gap or more in combat experience. The discussions of battles, campaigns, and wars that are included in this episode and the episode that follows are derived from the lack of detail that Mormon provided of his own military experience. As noted in episode 8, or part 2.2 of this podcast series, this lack of detail regarding his own experience is an interesting fact about Mormon that makes him unique. He writes about his own life and military experience in a manner that causes one to think he only did so because he needed to complete the record and not because he felt that the stories associated with his experience were of value to his readers today. Despite this almost disdainful treatment of his own experience, there are lessons of value as well as the possibility for some wonderful detail. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, 
or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mormon's Time What we know about Mormon was discussed previously in Episode 8 or Part 2.2. In this portion of this episode, my intent is to briefly discuss what we know about the time in which Mormon grew up and lived, without repeating the information discussed earlier. Mormon moved from the land northward to the land of Zarahemla when he was 11 years old, as we are told in Mormon 1.6. His move occurred within a year of the return of interstate or intertribal warfare, as we are told in Mormon 1.8. Was this coincidental? There are several references in the Book of Mormon of large migrations or colonization of people. I will argue that the entire Book of Mormon story is one of migrating or colonizing peoples. Because of the foundational importance of this action, it may be seen as a normal behavior amongst people, but the historical truth is that colonization is relatively rare in the ancient world. The movement of families from one area to another, though playing an important part in biblical and Book of Mormon stories, is rare and one of the reasons why the stories of Abraham, Joseph of Egypt, Moses and the Exodus, Lehi and his family, and so many other stories are remarkable because they were exceptions. This makes Mormon's story exceptional as well. He tells us in Mormon 1.7 that the land was covered with buildings and that the people were very numerous. We are elsewhere told in 4th Nephi 1.41 and 43 that the various tribes prospered and this prosperity was one of the root causes of pride and contentions. Why did Mormon move? We do not know. I have read some Book of Mormon scholars who have suggested that maybe Mormon's father was a military leader, and that was a reason why Mormon was himself selected at such a young age. This is a hypothesis, but it is one without affirmative support. What we do know is that we do not hear any more of Mormon's father after the movement down to Zarahemla. This episode focuses on the first post-visit war, or the first war that followed the visit of Jesus Christ to the Nephites and Lamanites, and several key points that we can learn from that war and more broadly across the period of Mormon's life and leadership. First post-visit war, 322 AD. This is a fascinatingly charged war with a variety of intriguing details, yet so much is left unsaid and so many details are left unpainted in the scene of this war. It is as if Mormon teased us with just a few details, letting us imagine all of the unsaid information. The first point of note is that Mormon identifies this in Mormon chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 as a tribally based war between the various tribes. The fascinating point is that he uses the family names from the ancestors of almost a thousand years earlier, that being Nephites and Lamanites. After nearly 200 years of no divisions whatsoever, clearly people kept some kind of record of lineage even when they were all one people. The war began in the borders of the land of Zarahemla by the waters of Sidon. It is unclear what Mormon meant by this geographical description. Was he talking about the area of Sidon Crossing, where Alma II led the Nephites in battle, as I discussed in episode 18 or part 4.3?
which was relatively close to the city of Zarahemla and would fit within a smaller definition of the land of Zarahemla? Or was he referring to the greater land of Zarahemla and the battle happened up by the land of Manti? Again, we don't know. Though there is no solid evidence one way or the other, my supposition here is that this battle happened closer to the city of Zarahemla rather than farther away. The following reasoning is offered in support. The area close to Zarahemla had seen numerous battles, and it must have been a natural funneling point where any army had to fight to get to the city itself. As the Nephites were newly returned to war, it would be reasonable that they not have a developed spy network, and therefore a large army would have been able to get close without earlier detection or intervention. The fact that Mormon used the words, the Nephites gathered together a great number of men in Mormon 1.11, might imply that the gathering did not begin until the Lamanites had already begun their march through the Nephite lands, and it took time until they reached the outskirts of Zarahemla for the Nephite army to be ready. The Nephite victory was not final in a single battle, as seems to be stated in Mormon 1.11. There were several battles, at least three, I believe though the number is unclear. A reading of multiple battles might support the first battle being closer to the land Manti, as the battles could have been fought as the Lamanite army advanced towards Zarahemla. But Mormon seems to suggest that the Nephites won most or all of the battles that year, and thus the continued supposition that the first victory happened close to Zarahemla, possibly by Sidon crossing, and then subsequent battles were fought as the Nephites pursued the defeated but not yet destroyed Lamanite army that retreated south. Another intriguing note is that the Lamanites did not surrender, as had been the norm in a lot of the record from late in the Amalekiahite War until the ending of the Nephite-Lamanite Wars as recorded in the Book of Helaman. Instead, we are told in Mormon 1.12, that the Lamanites withdrew their design, which seems to imply that they realized that this approach wouldn't work, and they were content to go back to the drawing board, so to speak, and then try again later, as we know they did. In some ways, this seems reminiscent of the early Lamanite attacks against Kings Benjamin and Mosiah II, and against Alma II, when the Lamanites made their foray down, were defeated, and simply returned to the land of Nephi, preparing to attack again sometime in the future. A final point in all of this was the size of the army. This was a re-beginning of warfare, and yet the armies were both large, more than 30,000 for the Nephites, as we are told in Mormon 1.11, and a probable similar number for the Lamanites. This is not the beginning of the military spectrum with small raids, but these are state-sized militaries. The supposition of similar-sized forces is the fact that there is no comment on a disparity of size, which seemed to be normal when such things were the case. The existence of robbers and the fact that they were dominating societies may have artificially delayed the progress of the conflict spectrum, and therefore the states re-entered warfare with very large armies. Why select a young man to lead your army? As we are told in the Book of Mormon, Mormon took command of the Nephite armies at the age of 15. That is young, by almost any standard. 
Now, Mormon made a note in Alma 43.17 of saying that Moroni took command at only 25, as if this were an early age. Now, maybe he was just providing detail, yet this was a rare detail for him to provide. Either way, Moroni's age was a point that Mormon made, and if nothing else, it suggests to the reader today a scale. Mormon was selected, as I said, at only 15 to command the Nephite armies, as we are told in Mormon 2.1. Why? The simple answer is that provided by Mormon himself, as he described in Mormon 1.15, his reasons for being visited of the Lord. Mormon said that he was sober-minded. This is a quality that might have impressed a ruler, maybe even more so in an era of wickedness. There must have been other large men in stature among the Nephites, unless Mormon was suggesting in Mormon 2.1 that he was much larger in stature than even a large man, a Goliath-like figure, perhaps. That would certainly impress. There are other political and practical reasons for selecting a young man rather than a more experienced adult. It must be remembered throughout this discussion that the Nephites had a large population, as Mormon himself stated in Mormon 1-7, and they had just successfully completed a campaign of multiple victories against the Lamanites, as I just discussed in the previous section. There should not have been a lack of possible commanders. In fact, the opposite should have been true. There should have been numerous men with combat leadership experience. It has been suggested by some Book of Mormon scholars who have written on this topic that Nephite military leadership was familiarly based, as noted in the succession from Moroni to Moronihah. This is the only certain reference of some sort of dynastic succession and military command from father to son, and it would be problematic to assume that Mormon received the command of the armies from his father based solely on the Moroni to Moronihah succession. And additionally, Mormon did not say anything about his father's position, which seems odd given the fact that he mentions his lineage several times. Even if Mormon did not receive command by direct line succession, it is possible that the Nephite leader was looking for a military leader from a specific Nephite tribe, clan, or even family, as that subgroup may have traditionally carried the burdens of military leadership. The fact that Mormon can state clearly that he was a pure descendant of Lehi through Nephi, as he did in 3 Nephi 5.20 and Mormon 1.5, may have made him just such an ideal candidate. The political intrigues of a tribal state, controlled or at least influenced by robbers, must have been significant. As such, the ruler may have chosen a young, inexperienced boy for just the reason that he thought he might be able to control or manipulate such a commander, or that such a commander would not be able to garner the support of the army sufficient to pose a political threat to the Nephite leader. Finally, it is possible that the leader of the state may have been seeking for innovation and fresh ideas, much as the Lord chose Joseph Smith as a young man because he was open to the instruction of the Lord and willing to accept new ideas without having to overcome a lifetime's worth of old ideas. This assumes a bold, decisive, and powerful state leader, which, in a time of robber influence, seems unlikely, though still possible.
There may have been some aspect of each of these theories in the reasoning behind Mormon's selection to be the Nephite commander. It is useful to contemplate why choose a 15-year-old as Mormon clearly struggled in the beginning of his command experience. Yet he was never replaced, nor was he relieved of command. Remember that Mormon lost his first two battles at a minimum, and maybe more than that as a 15- or 16-year-old commander. When he did give up command, it was as a result of his own choice and not as directed by the magistrate or sovereign. Mormon was not fired. He resigned. There are so many questions that readers should have about Mormon's selection, retention, and security of his position throughout all of these wars, and yet all of the answers will be based almost entirely on supposition and guessing. Before I leave this point, I want to make something clear. How we view children and adolescents in the 21st century is not reflective of how children and adolescents were viewed anciently. In the pre-industrial world, there tended to be a simple black and white distinction between child and adult. An adult could do adult work and a child could not. There was no adolescent period where a person who was capable of doing adult work or of bearing children was not expected to do that work. In this sense, Mormon, who was a self-declared adult in size and to a degree also in demeanor, may have simply been looked upon as an adult and expected to shoulder adult burdens. His soberness may have been recognized as good judgment, and he may have also been respected for having solid determination and commitment to completing a task. In short, he was a strong, capable, and intelligent man whose only setback was inexperience in war. I like this perspective, and so this is my interpretation of why he was chosen. His age was simply one fact about an otherwise well-qualified and impressive person. In this sense, only our modern sense of childhood extending into late teens and early 20s clouds our understanding and judgment of this selection process. Learning from the Scriptures, Applied History Mormon's first campaign, or war in command, which was the second post-visit war, ended sometime during 330 AD, as we are told in Mormon 2.9, and the Lamanites did not attack again until 345 AD, which I refer to as the third post-visit war. This is a long time period, about 15 years, with no war. I want to emphasize that Mormon was about age 19 or so as the second post-visit war ended, and in his early 30s when the third post-visit war began. My point in emphasizing Mormon's age is to say that this 15 or so years occurred in one of the most influential parts of his life and must have shaped his thinking a great deal, possibly much more than war did. In this gap period between the wars, Mormon mentions his preaching and the effort to get the people to repent, but there is no mention of defensive preparations. The third post-visit war continued from 345 to about 350 AD, as we are told in Mormon 2, 16, and 28. And the fourth post-visit war did not start until 361, as given in Mormon 3.1. In this 11-year gap between the wars, there were defensive preparations. 
Why the difference between these two periods of non-war, one with no explicit defensive preparations and one with explicit defensive preparations? I do not want to overstate the differences, even though I will dilate on it to make the point I think to be important. But I want to remind listeners and Book of Mormon readers that we are told that Mormon did fortify the city Angola in Mormon 2-4 during the Second Post-Visit War, and it is possible to infer that he fortified the city of Jashon that is referenced in Mormon 2-16-17 and 20. However, there is no mention of fortification or serious preparations during the interwar period between the Second and Third Post-Visit Wars. My argument is that one of the significant differences between the interwar periods and the use of fortifications is that during the first interwar period, Mormon recovered the plates as he was directed by Amaron. He would have done this at about 336 AD, as that would be his 24th year, as we are told that he was directed by Amaron in Mormon 1, 2-4, to go and get the plates when he was that old. This was in the middle of the second to third post-visit war interwar period. I suppose that by the time he was commanding in the third to fourth post-visit war interwar period, he had read of the efforts of Moroni and how he fortified in times of peace. And then, I believe, that Mormon applied those key lessons from this earlier and most significant Nephite commander that have been laid out in earlier episodes of this podcast, particularly episode 21 or part 5.2. I believe that the reason why Mormon was such an avid applied historian was because he lived that life. He was a student of Moroni. He applied what he had learned from the sacred history, and it made him a better commander and his people safer. He recognized personally and in real and concrete and life-saving terms the value of learning from and applying the lessons of the scriptural past. This is why I think that Mormon advocates for applied history throughout his work. He gives us the historic stories for us to study, derive lessons from, and then apply those historical lessons to our actual manner of life, our behavior, and our actions so that we can be more successful in the real world, just as he was. More fortified cities. City assaults. As the discussion on the post-visit wars continue in the following episode with greater detail, it is important to note the critical role that city defenses and attacks play in the larger campaigns and wars. Though it does not begin this way, city defenses and attacks on cities become central to the Mormon-era style of warfare. Mormon was a commander who in his maturity centered his strategy on city defense. The first post-visit war did not seem to be, based on Mormon's brief account, a war or campaign involving cities or fortified positions. This is a supposition based solely on the initial battle being in the open field by the waters of Sidon. It is possible that the later battles referred to were fought in and around cities. However, this is unclear and to me seems unlikely. The second post-visit war was different though the first battle may have been an open field battle as discussed in Mormon 2 verses 2 to 3, the armies later fought in the fortified city of Angola, 
then in the city of David, and finally the city of Joshua. The third through fifth post-visit wars followed similar patterns. Cities were central to the fighting, both for the defender and obviously the attacker. The attacks were focused on the cities because that was where the defenders were located. I refer you to the adage of why people rob banks, because that is where the money is. People defended and attacked cities because that was and is where the people were and are. The emphasis on cities can also be attributed to the lessons learned by Mormon from Moroni. Mormon may have seen the benefits that came from having fortified cities and how that allowed the commander to wage successful campaigns. I think this was so, but I don't want to overemphasize this point since city defense was accomplished before Mormon recovered the records and there was a utilitarian logic to concentration and fortification. Despite this, I believe that learning from Moroni helped Mormon to make his defensive strategy more effective, and this learning allowed for his successful defense at the narrow neck near the City of Desolation early in the fourth post-visit war, as detailed in Mormon chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Only limited success. Americans have been accused of a simplistic view of military strategy, complete victory as the goal. Some of this historic criticism stems from Ulysses S. Grant and his requirement for unconditional surrender during early battles in the West of the United States Civil War. This view of all or nothing led to frustration over limited successes in the Korean and Vietnam Wars, as well as more recent criticisms of performance in Afghanistan and Iraq. Mormon, unlike his seeming ideal for generalship, Moroni, had to deal with the issue of limited success. Once Mormon began to lose battles at the very beginning of his command, he never was able to regain all of the lost land. Mormon was always serving in a period of decline. The Nephites started Mormon's era with the largest area of possessions they would have. This consistent decline in dominance and control must have played in Mormon's frustrations with himself and his people. Even when the Nephites won, it was the defense of a city or the regaining of a recently lost city. The Nephites did not again go on a campaign of reconquest. The largest reconquest campaign was during the third post-visit war when the Nephites had lost many cities in the land northward and they were able to regain all of those lost possessions. Despite this success, the Nephites only regained the cities lost in recent fighting and they did not then nor ever regain the land of Zarahemla. This successful campaign, as well as all other campaigns of this period, fit the pattern of consistent loss and limited success. Atrocities and War In a record with more than a hundred references of armed conflict, there are very few references to atrocities. Prior to Mormon's era, there is no mention of mistreatment of prisoners, nor any mention of rape or looting. Even in the era of robber dominance, there are no references to atrocities beyond murder and theft. Atrocities seem to have been remarkably absent from Nephite-Lamanite struggle, or at least they are unmentioned. I want to admit that it may just be an issue of omission from the record rather than an accurate depiction. We just don't know. What is clear is that Mormon does share information about atrocities that occurred within his own command experience. 
In fact, this is the one area of detail that is much greater in Mormon's account than in any other era of Book of Mormon conflict. This stunning emphasis is important to ponder. Why did Mormon emphasize the atrocities of his era? Why do we receive these atrocities in such detail? What is he trying to teach us? The intent of this section is not to glory in the brutal detail that is in this portion of Mormon's record, but rather to identify the significance of these events in Mormon's account and seek to ask listeners to think about it and maybe to provide answers to some of the questions just posed. I want to quote from Mormon chapter 4, verses 10 to 12. The Nephites repented not of the evil they had done, but persisted in their wickedness continually. And it is impossible for the tongue to describe or for man to write a perfect description of the horrible scene of the blood and carnage which was among the people, both of the Nephites and of the Lamanites. And every heart was hardened, so that they delighted in the shedding of blood continually. And there never had been so great wickedness among all the children of Lehi, nor even among all the house of Israel, according to the words of the Lord, as was among this people. Close quote. This brief description of events and behaviors is critical as it sets the foundation for the atrocities to be described. This is important as we ponder these events. The Nephites who committed the atrocities, as well as the Lamanites, were wicked. Not just average wickedness, but they were the most wicked people that Mormon could reference in all of the sacred history. My first point of learning is that though wars are the most atrocious of human endeavors, and all wars include the basic atrocities of slaughter and butchery, there are usually reasons and justifications for this behavior. Yet, there are atrocities for which there can be no justifications, and these actions are performed only by those who can be described as wicked. Based on this point, as given to us by Mormon, righteousness is a defense and a protection from the performance of atrocity. Some of the events specifically mentioned involved human sacrifice. Here, Mormon wades without question into commentary on the issue of whether or not there are acceptable acts based on culture or religion. His answer is a resounding no. Human sacrifice is clearly against the will and intent of God, regardless of religious affinity or profession. Mormon gives details in chapters 4, verses 14 and 15. Quote, And they did also march forward against the city Teancum, and did drive the inhabitants forth out of her, and did take many prisoners, both women and children, and did offer them up as sacrifices unto their idol gods. And it came to pass that in the three hundred and sixty and seventh year, the Nephites, being angry because the Lamanites had sacrificed their women and their children, that they did go against the Lamanites with exceedingly great anger, insomuch that they did beat again the Lamanites and drive them out of their lands. Close quote. The intriguing aspect of this brief account is that the sacrifice of the Nephites by the Lamanite warriors actually served to motivate the Nephite opponent and allowed them to be successful as it gave them a strength of conscience and commitment that they did not possess otherwise. The practicality of this lesson is crucial as throughout history there are similar events where a people 
or an army provided the moral ammunition for their opponents. The Lamanites did so for the Nephites in this case. Despite the temporary success fueled by the Nephite desire for vengeance, the decline was inevitable, as Mormon simply records the fate of failure. He does this in concert with a variety of events, as if to say that when a people are wholly wicked, then they can only flee with the strength of men, and those who do not have strength are swept under by the power of their enemy. I quote from Mormon 4.21, And when they had come the second time, the Nephites were driven and slaughtered with an exceedingly great slaughter. Their women and their children were again sacrificed unto idols. Close quote. The most detailed account of atrocity and depravity comes to us through Moroni as he included a letter he received from his father. As Mormon wrote to his son, it was as if he wanted to emphasize the fact of cause and effect and express to his son the fact that the military failures were directly linked to the depravity that was occurring around them. I believe that he wrote this letter sometime during the 5th post-visit war, or about 377 to 379 AD, as part of what I label the Jordan Campaign. I quote from Moroni chapter 9, verses 7 to 11 and 16 to 19. And now I write somewhat concerning the sufferings of this people, for according to the knowledge which I have received from Amaron, behold, the Lamanites have many prisoners, which they took from the tower of Sherazah. And there were men, women, and children, and the husbands and fathers of those women and children they have slain, and they feed the women upon the flesh of their husbands, and the children upon the flesh of their fathers, and no water save a little do they give unto them. And notwithstanding this great abomination of the Lamanites, it doth not exceed that of our people in Moriantum. For behold, many of the daughters of the Lamanites have they taken prisoners, and after depriving them of that which was most dear and precious above all things, which is chastity and virtue, and after they had done this thing, they did murder them in a most cruel manner, torturing their bodies even unto death. And after they have done this, they devour their flesh like unto wild beasts, because of the hardness of their hearts, and they do it for a token of bravery." O oh, my beloved son, how can a people like this that are without civilization? And again, my son, there are many widows and their daughters who remain in Sherazah, and that part of the provisions which the Lamanites did not carry away, behold, the army of Zenephi has carried away, and left them to wander whithersoever they can for food, and many old women do faint by the way and die. And the army which is with me is weak, and the armies of the Lamanites are betwixt Sherazah and me, and as many as have fled to the army of Aaron have fallen victims to their awful brutality. Oh, the depravity of my people! They are without order and without mercy. Behold, I am but a man, and I have but the strength of a man, and I cannot any longer enforce my commands. And they have become strong in their perversion, and they are alike brutal sparing none, neither old nor young, and they delight in everything save that which is good. And the suffering of our women and our children upon all the face of this land doth exceed everything. Yet tongue cannot tell, neither can it be written. Close quote. 
As Mormon wrote this letter, he seemed to have been a beaten, disgusted, and hopeless man. Later, he lifts his son through pointing toward aspects of the gospel of Christ. Despite his personal testimony of the mercy and atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, Mormon knew that he could not recommend his people to God, and therefore they were without hope. From this letter, you can see why Mormon would invite the Lamanite king to a final battle that could end it all, and it is important to understand that Mormon knew how this battle was going to end. I suppose that he was seeking to end the suffering and wickedness of his people through a final sacrifice of the entire society. The wickedness of a people is necessary to the commission of atrocity. The more wicked and distant from God the people are, the viler and more depraved the actions. Unit names as indications of size and the problems of attrition in protracted conflict. In the ancient world, there were military organizations that were named based on the size of the force. Some, like the Roman century, only had a hundred men in a distant and mythical past. Others, like the Greek-named Persian myriad, were by definition a group of 10,000. Despite the name and the ideal, almost never was a Persian myriad a full 10,000. In fact, only one such organization regularly went into battle at full strength, a group the Persians called the Immortals. This unit received its name because it was as if the organization never died. There were always new replacements for those lost in battle. Other Achaemenid Persian units never existed at the definitional size. The Roman century, by the time we have records of it, were never at 100 by design, as they tended to be only 80 men. Even with that, most Roman centuries did not go into battle at full strength. My point in giving this brief historical information is to provide background for why I say that it is possible that the 10,000s mentioned by Mormon in Mormon chapter 6 were not actually groups of 10,000 warriors, but were rather unit designations like the Persian myriad or the Roman century. If this was true, then the final battle at the Hill Cumorah, which featured references to 23 such sized organizations, may not have been a battle featuring some 230,000 Nephite warriors, but possibly 23 organizations of significantly fewer warriors. The details of this battle will be discussed in a later episode, but it is important to here note the historical precedent for size-named organizations that were not reflective of their actual size on the day of a given battle. It is interesting to note that throughout the period of Mormon that the size of Nephite armies were close to or tended to be rounded off to ten thousands. For example, Mormon tells us about the Nephite army of 30,000 in Mormon 1.11, an army of 42,000 in Mormon 2.9, an army of 30,000 in Mormon 2.25, and an army of 230,000 in Mormon 6, 11-15. Much as was discussed in episode 23, or part 5.4 of this podcast series, about the possibility of a semi-standard Nephite army based on 2,000 warriors in the Moroni period, Maybe in this era, the semi-standard size was 10,000, and Mormon built his force around that chosen number. 
the 10,000 of the post-visit period may have actually begun as a unit of that size. The period under question was a period of consistent conflict. Mormon gives references of campaigns, the marching of the Lamanite armies against a particular city, but associated with these marches would have been numerous other skirmishes, probes, reconnaissance missions, raids, and so forth. All of these events would inflict attrition upon the armies. This does not include the ubiquitous problems of sickness, hygiene, and disease that were rampant in nearly every large ancient army. Only in the very recent past have casualties due to illness and disease been reduced below the casualties from actual battle. Anciently, the numbers may have been three to one or more in favor of the disease depending on climate and weather. Mormon also notes the fact in Mormon 4.11 that in this ending period of Nephite society that violence and death was continual, so that casualties would have been continual as well. This is important in assessing the size of forces, especially at the end. Even if the designation of 10,000 was an accurate designation initially at the beginning of a post-visit war period, that after five years of nearly constant fighting, those numbers would have been significantly reduced. It is highly unlikely, even when taking into account the fact that the Nephites were all consolidated, that the Nephite military organizations would have been at full strength by the time we get to the battle at the Hill Cumorah. Lessons Learned Spiritual I expect that some listeners may be wondering what my point is for bringing up these mundane and even profane aspects about war in a podcast of this type. Let me offer six lessons that these details might be suggesting to us. 1. The Book of Mormon is telling us stories about a real world and real people. Mormon was a boy selected by his people to lead them in a real crisis. Asking real questions about that and honestly and faithfully seeking answers opens you and I up to profound revelation. This isn't mythology and it isn't fiction. Mormon wasn't Frodo or Bilbo Baggins heading off into a made-up adventure. Another reason that this is important is to recognize that sometimes horribly difficult and truly dangerous challenges come to us. They came to Mormon and they may come to us. Hopefully, not the same sorts of challenges, but they may be equally as difficult and possibly as physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually challenging. That means that we can learn from Mormon as to how to respond. I believe, in part, this is why he selected the stories that he did, to help people like you and I to negotiate this very real world in which we all live. 2. Failure is a part of life, even a spiritually powerful life. Presenting Mormon's military success as a sort of win-loss record, Mormon was something like 9 and 12 while in personal command of Nephite armies. That is the kind of record that gets coaches fired. And as we shall see in a following episode, he lost his final and the biggest battle in Nephite history. There are many reasons for this record that I have already discussed and will discuss. My point is that how we judge a life, especially our own life, can't simply be about wins and losses. Life wasn't that simple for Mormon, and it isn't that simple for us. 
I think Mormon's life was tremendously successful, and I am grateful for it, regardless of his win-loss record. 3. The scriptures exist to inform our conduct in the real world. I teach applied history for a living, and I love it. This is certainly one of the reasons that I love and respect Mormon so much. He is the best example of being an applied historian. He is teaching us things through the record that he created to help us in the world. Reading and studying the sacred records of his people, I believe, helped him to be a better and more successful battlefield commander in the world. The scriptures are not just about helping us conceptually and philosophically. There are literal and tangible benefits that come from our study of them. Mormon demonstrated that in his life, and I know that it has been true in my life as well. 4. We live in an era of urbanized warfare. Mormon's form of war revolved around defending and attacking cities. Life in the 21st century is becoming more and more significantly a life about warfare in and around cities. In some cases, I actually mean war and warfare with tanks, artillery pieces, and guns, as we all too sadly have seen in Afghanistan, Syria, and Ukraine. Mostly, though, I mean this metaphorically. The fighting that seems to matter is how to govern our cities, how to behave in our cities, and how to love one another despite physical and ideological differences in our cities. The solutions to these problems are not to be found through disappearing into personal electronic devices. The solutions come from going out into the world and engaging with each other in positive ways that change the course of the battle. We cannot cower behind personal armor and collective fortification. We need to go out from our fortifications and into the world to rescue those who are assailed in our cities. 5. Horrible things happen when we abandon Christ and any attempt to be godlike people. The atrocities in the Book of Mormon are given in enough detail to tell us just how bad it can get if we allow ourselves, our families, our schools, and our communities to completely abandon Christ. We might think things are bad now and that there is nothing we can do, and how much worse can it get anyway? So maybe I just sit back and wait things out. The horrors expressed by Mormon to us and specifically to his son remind us just how bad people can get. Most people who live in the Western world culturally or the first world economically do not understand how bad things can get because their worlds have been ones of relative ease and luxury. I think that Mormon usually teaches us through positive examples. As I've said before, this is why I think that there is a unity cycle in the Book of Mormon rather than a pride cycle. That said, at times, Mormon and Moroni do teach through negatives. The atrocities at the end of the record are the extreme of the negative instruction. Don't abandon Christ, they warn, or this is how bad it did actually get. 6. We are all in some spiritual unit. We regularly call every family organization, a family in the Church of Jesus Christ. It may be a family of one, a family that is a couple, or a family with numerous children. They are all a family. Our church community may be a small congregation of a couple of families, 
or it may be massive and reach out to thousands in relative close proximity, and we may call them branches, wards, stakes, areas, etc. We also serve in classes and quorums in the church. Each of these various groupings, whether they be a quorum, class, ward, or family, can be viewed as a type of spiritual military unit, a 10,000, if you will, using the designation discussed in this episode. We are all in one or more such units, and every one of those units serves a purpose of bringing us back to God through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Each of these lessons is intended to remind myself and you that what we read and study in the Book of Mormon is to help us to return to God in a practical and real way. In the next episode, we will discuss the wars of Mormon's life, and we will go through them in some detail. I invite you to reach out and ask questions, and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon, or at warinthebookofmormon at gmail.com. All one word, warinthebookofmormon at gmail.com. Until next time.